My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Steve Leonard is a former senior military strategist, strategic communicator, and logistician who served three decades in the military in Iraq, Afghanistan, the Far East, and all over the United States. Steve's work as a strategist for senior leaders took him routinely to the White House, the halls of Congress, and the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. Steve is also the creator of Doctrine Man, a defense and national security microblog with more than two million unique visitors each week. Steve is a non-resident fellow with the Modern War Institute at West Point, co-founder and board member of the Military Writers Guild, co-founder of the national security blog, Divergent Options, co-host of the national security podcast, The Smell of Victory, and author, co-author, or editor of 10 books and numerous articles, blog posts, and podcasts. Steve also serves as Senior Assistant Dean at the University of Kansas, where he also teaches leadership. I hope you enjoy learning from Steve Leonard today, because I always do. Well, Steve, it's great to connect again after not seeing you much this summer. At all this summer. Yeah, it's been a great summer, hasn't it? You haven't had to see me or deal with me. <laughs> well, I thought first maybe you could describe where you've served in the military, what your basic responsibilities were. And I know this is a little bit of an impossible task because your CV alone is six pages long. And that doesn't even begin to describe what you've done. But if you could maybe just give us a brief overview of maybe how you ended up where you are and, and what you were doing in the military. So I would say that my CV will never compare to yours. Uh, the academic CV is something completely different. I try <laughs> to emulate that a little bit, but I never have the depth of publications. Um, so I'll never get quite there. I used, yeah, I but used you wrote, to you wrote 10 books. Yeah, not quite 10, but you know, maybe, but those are different. I mean, that's, it's not the same as, uh, you know, you guys write, a thousand articles over the course of a career and you go to all those conferences and do all those things. And yeah. So a six page CV, it probably caps at six pages where yours is probably sitting at six. And then when you're an associate and then a full professor, and then when you're the old man sitting on the Hill with a thousand page CV, then we'll talk. Well, you're doing, you're doing uh, real, you're still, you're doing stuff in the real world, not just the ivory tower. So let's, let's hear about the real world stuff you were doing. So I think the answer to the first question is I had uh, I spent about 30 years in uniform and everybody's experience is a little bit different. I um, I was an engineer undergrad out of the University of Idaho. I think that we've talked about that before. Why do we just put, uh, that, put that together recently that we were both from Idaho? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the state has to be empty if we're not there. <laughs> I used to hear that joke all the time. Um and I, I commissioned in the army in 1987. My career goal was to be an engineer. And of course, no. And the army's infinite wisdom, they said, we're going to make you a, a logistician, a supply chain guy. Uh, and which is not what I ever wanted to do. But I did that for about 15 years. And then the second 15 years, I was a strategist. And I look back on all that, no regrets. It was a, a, a terrific experience. You see a lot, you experience a lot, you go to a lot of interesting places um, and you learn a lot. And uh, I think I, you asked where I'd served. I think uh, we've served in Europe, we've served in the Middle East and the Far East, all over the United States. Um, I mean, just you name it. I mean, I've been all over 
we moved 16 times in the first 28 years. Uh, our 17th move wow. landed us in Kansas. Uh, but that's actually fairly typical for the military experience. If you spend that much time, you usually move about every year and a half, two years, pack up your house, go somewhere. It's a really nomadic lifestyle. So you develop a lot of tolerance for those kind of oddities where you don't know what it's like to settle down and you're used to jumping from job to job to job to job because that's just the nature of what you do uh i uh, told a class of mba students at the beginning of the summer we did an mba summit and i had mentioned that somebody had asked a question about well i've had three jobs in the last five years is that bad so not necessarily. It's not. I mean, if we go to where we want to go, we 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 seek out those opportunities. If you don't get fired and it's not a negative experience, then yeah, it's good for you. Uh, which was not, I think, what see people wanted to hear. I think people wanted to hear is, hey, I've had a job for twenty years and I've never changed it. I have no idea what that's like. Yeah, I've been at the school now uh, for what eight years, and I've had four different jobs in eight years. So Even at the school, about, yeah. Yeah, uh, and how I ended up here is part of that story. Being a strategist, we'll dump the logistician piece. That's a great experience. It allows me to talk to the folks in our area that does supply chain and speak the same language as them because it's a common experience. But it was the strategist side of me that really grew and developed and saw some different things. Um, and that's how I ended up here. It was meeting the old dean mm -hmm. at an event, uh, uh, Dean Bendapudi, when she was the dean of the business school. I ran into her at an event where I was speaking. And uh, I was just filling in for somebody who bailed at the last second and uh, showed up, gave a pitch. She walks up afterwards, hands me, hands me her business card. This was about 2012. I want to hire you. Well, that's nice. I have a job. I appreciate that. I'm not interested. And, but we stayed in touch. And then when I got ready to retire, I just reached out to her and said, were you really serious? And she said, absolutely. I've got a job for you. I'll make a job for you. Just come to KU. And we were in Fort Leavenworth at the time. So it was a you know, 30 mile jump. Yeah. Not a big deal. It's an easy move, I guess you could say. Um, the Probably the most challenging part, and it really gets to my personality, is there was a job, but there was nothing to do. You don't, nobody knew who I was. I had a really fancy title. I had an office that changed about every three months um, until they figured out what I was going to do. And I had to figure out what I was going to do, which allowed me to kind of carve out a niche. Um, uh, I think by the second year I was teaching um, and kind of getting my feet wet, figuring out what I could do. But that's very much, I think, our lifestyle um, in the sense that, you know, we figure out what we can do. We carve out a niche. We apply our experiences, uh, those lessons learned kind of things that we've, we've learned over the years. Uh, I had the, I had the ability to fall into this area pretty naturally. Um, and Vince Barker was the one who was reached out to me first and said, Hey, we want you in this area. Will you come here and teach? Yeah, sure. I'll anything to not be on staff. Um, I know it sounds funny, but that <laughs> but that is exactly how I felt at the time, and and I still give that guy credit for saving me, uh, because uh, long story less long, I ended up where I am today, yeah. doing the things I am today, uh, and meeting people like you who I uh, I absolutely think the world of, 
And I think what you do here, and this is not part of the podcast, I'm sure, but what you do here translates so well to what you do every day. I wish every single tenured faculty member drew a lesson from this and thought, hey, the more I engage, the more I can take what I do and translate it into the classroom. And share it with others, yeah. Yeah, which has been a huge kind of blessing, surprise to me how much, one, how much I've enjoyed it, but two, how I'm just pulling stuff constantly. Yesterday, oh, I God, spent yes. 45 minutes with Nate Pettit at NYU. On the, in the episode with him, he talked about this panic attack he had and how somebody listened to him. And so for 45 minutes yesterday, he walked me through an exercise that he does in his leadership class that really teaches people how to listen. So like now I'm going to incorporate that in my class this semester. So yeah, the learnings and the applications are endless. I, I, can I go back a little bit? What what is a what does a military strategist do? What does that look like if you're in Afghanistan or Iraq? What sort of things are you? How are you using so, your strategy? So yeah, that, that's the term I like to use too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's different flavors of strategist. Uh, I was a generalist, which meant I could do. They they used to break us down into you do strategic leadership, you do strategic education, or you do uh, strategic planning. I did all three. Uh, and I felt like that was kind of the necessity. I'm, I'm, I'm a utility infielder by trade, so I feel like I should be able to play any position, not specialize in one where I'm, I'm kind of holed off into a corner. Um, so I did everything from speech writing to uh, there's a position in the military where you lead planning groups, uh, usually for three or four star generals, which is a fun job to have because your job is literally to help them think and you wow. spend all your time traveling and sitting with them and picking through their brains and helping them formulate ideas, uh, which was, I did that for most of the time I was a strategist um, and through for a variety of different senior leaders. It was terrific. That, that kind of a job takes you into the halls of Congress. It took me into the white house. Um, pretty much anywhere, I, anywhere they went, I went. Uh, I, and I could tell stories about sitting in the back corner of the room, listening to the chief of staff of the army or getting kicked out of the situation room by Rahm Emanuel uh, in the White House, which was a great story that nobody ever believes. But uh, we actually were in the situation room planning um, some things for Afghanistan. And somebody rushes in and says, the chief is coming, chief of staff. He was chief of staff at the time. You have to go out the back door. <laughs> And we literally had to go hide in a little side room until the White House staff came in and then we scooted on through, but uh, we got bumped. And that's a, those are the little stories that you get out of those experiences. Um, but as a planner, uh, the, the other piece of that is the strategic planning part. And um, I have had a hand in planning uh, operations in Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, uh, I actually got to plan a big piece of the uh, what's the word for it? Uh, I, I want to say it's the it was the post-war recovery of Iraq. Uh, I got, had a, spent a year in Baghdad working out of the embassy, helping the Iraqi military and their their uh, their version of the Defense Department, their Ministry of Defense, helping them stand up. And, and take things on their own. Uh, so those, that job takes you into a lot of different corners, uh, but it's a pinch me job. I was, I can, I can remember sitting in the Ministry of Defense in Baghdad 
realizing, you know, as a 40 some year old guy, I'm advising their minister of defense on how to do things. But how does that take you there? How do you end up in that position? And honestly, the amount of emotional intelligence that takes to be successful, you know, you can't let your ego get in the way. You can't, you, you can't be a stronger personality than them. You, you have to do things a very certain way. Uh, that's, that's a practice hand. Yeah. Uh, so, but it was a lot of fun. And that job, that job was the most fun I think I'd ever had in the army. Just, just to be able to go places and see things and do things and interact with people. Uh, it was just amazing. There wasn't a day that went by that, you know, you weren't doing something interesting. Something interesting that matters too. Uh, well, we're getting closer to the main question I was going to ask you, but before we get to that too, I have to ask, what is Doctrine Man? Now, I, I know a little bit about Doctrine Man, but in your words, what is Doctrine Man? So, Doctrine Man is it's, it, it's a very it's a perspective driven thing. So it means different things to different people, and it's funny that you mention this because I had an email from uh, a professor at Boston University who asked that I appear for in her class in the fall to talk about this very subject. This is required reading for my class, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't know. I, I, to me, it was a cartoon. And it was a way to do a little bit of venting um, to kind of make fun of the silliness of what we do in the military. Um, because part of that experience of seeing and hearing things and being in the room when things happened, some of it was so inane, but you couldn't tell anybody. You couldn't go somewhere and say, hey, look, you can't believe what the what the vice president just said. But you could put it in a cartoon and you could make a joke out of it and then people could read it for what it was. Um, and so it was a fun way to kind of tell some of those stories. But at the same time, it grew into, for me, it grew into a leader development platform where I could share news, share commentary, give people a space where they could interact and communicate with each other. Um, and that was really the the true value of that. And I still do that today. Where I find the time, I just, I don't know, but I carve it out because that's a really important space for a lot of people. And I don't, I didn't, I didn't fully realize that for a long time. For me, it was just a, hey, we're going to put some articles and some cartoons out. We're going to have a conversation. And then you'd bump into somebody and they'd say, you have no idea how that whole thing changed my life. And you know, right? How, did, how does it change your life? Oh, uh, it convinced me to take a risk here or or to do try something different or, or you know, to, to, to not take myself so seriously. And then you start to realize that you actually have an influence, whether you meant to or not, the whole social media influencer thing. And that brings um, a whole new degree of responsibility to it, that in that in that sense that you have to be very careful about negative influence, I think, uh, whether you intend to or not. You, I uh, Every post I put up, I think about what I'm going to say and I think about it through multiple perspectives, how it will be interpreted. Uh, can it be twisted? Uh, how would I respond if it was? And it's a lot, a lot of thought to put into a post. But when you think about it, there's about three hundred thousand people to follow that that account. Three hundred thousand people. You got a following of three hundred thousand people of doctrine. It's now. about that much. Yeah. Um, and I do would never want to do something that put that at risk, 
or made those people question their choices to follow. So, so I was that, that's a lot of responsibility. I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago, two weeks ago, uh, a guy that is not in the military, but has done a lot of training for the military. And so he was like, look, I, I want to put you in touch with uh, McMaster and I want to put you in in, in touch with the XO for uh, McRaven. And I want to put you in touch with the guy that runs Buds. And so he's like trying to line me up with all of these um, military leaders from a podcast. And one of the things he said was, so, you know, doctrine, man, huh? <laughs> And I thought, wow, like the, the people in the military, they know Doctrine Man. And, and this guy is as connected as anybody in the military. And that was like, of all the people that I have interviewed or met, it was like, uh, you know, it, and he was like, it took me a while to figure out who Doctrine Man was, but now I know who it is. I, I mean, I, I know I, it's not it's not hidden anymore as much, but in, in the early it, stages. In the early stages, it was, but it was part of the gag. Um, I, I had a, in the back of my mind, kind of a Clark Kentish kind of thing going on that I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell anybody, but anybody who knew me knew what it was and then knew who that I did it. Um, but I think a lot of people really enjoyed the secrecy of it. Oh, who is it? We got to figure out who it is. And it was in my biography. Uh, my bosses always knew I never made any attempt to hide it from my bosses, which, leads to a, a story that I, I told not that long ago. I was, um, we were in a session at uh, uh, at the Pentagon with the chief staff of the army when General Odierno was chief staff of the army. And um, he was talking about some things, getting ready to say some things, we're getting ready for a meeting and he stops. And then he looks at me and I'm against one of the walls uh, with my notebook, just kind of sitting there. And he says, and none of this stuff, <laughs> better end up in a cartoon and and admit that's it was it was the worst kept secret in the pentagon anybody who needed to know knew uh or at least i thought they did uh so yeah it wasn't a huge secret but it was still and it was fun um it just it's been part of my life for a long time and i swear to god i keep saying i'm gonna sunset the thing and let it just and then somebody will come up and say, oh, God, please don't. I count on that every morning. That's how I start my day. Okay, I'll keep it going for one more year. Well, you've already given me a lot of your time. So let's get to the the main question that I was going to ask you. As, you. as you think back on this career that you've had, are there a handful of lessons that you would most, or, or which, not are there, but which handful of lessons would you most want to pass on to others? So it's, so I was going to, I thought about this a lot. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, growing up, my biggest influence uh, influences were coaches, and I to this day I still I still quote John Wooden. I still quote uh, um, John Wooden again and John Wooden again. But those, <laughs> but uh, as a as a young before I came in the army, my biggest influences were people like George Raveling. I still have things in this office somewhere that I used to pick up at his summer basketball camp. So the lessons of sports were huge. Um, and then those just kind of played out as in my adult years. Um, so I never lost touch with those. And I know you relate to that because a lot of the mm -hmm. podcasts that you do are with coaches yeah. or people that are are prominent within the, the, the field of athletics. And I think that's relevant because as I began my career, I, I had a career that was 
very competitive in nature and in a field and a profession that is a very competitive upper out do or die kind of comp uh, kind of profession which relates really well to sports um what i learned um over the years and and part of my shtick and i'll call it my shtick is my my weekly column that i write uh is generally lessons learned I like to tell a story, draw out a lesson, why that why that lesson mattered. Uh, but the stories are what makes those things always come alive. Um, and so I wrote down five of these things, and every one of these things always has always has a story to it. Uh, so as a young leader, the very first thing I learned, uh, I, I I had shown up at Fort Campbell. It was 1988, uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, and I'm in my first platoon with my first platoon sergeant. And what a platoon sergeant is, is a guy who's got like 15 years or so in the military. He's a grizzled old guy or woman. They've been around for a while, but, but they help those young officers lead. And I, I, I was very tactically proficient, but I needed to learn a lot about leadership. And, and I was still learning. And he said something that I have quoted to this day, which is really just a golden rule kind of thing is we had gone out for a long run and he said, leadership basically comes down to one thing. If you take care of them, they'll take care of you. Hmm. And it's, that's what I mean. It's a true golden rule thing. If, if you have people that work for you and you look out for their well-being, uh, you look out for their best interests, you take good care of them, that they'll be there when you need their help. When you really need them, they'll they'll be there for you. And and if you can do that one thing, if you can take good care of people, you'll succeed. Uh, and and that was you know that was that is something that I have tried to do my whole career. Even now, um, I had that conversation with somebody today about you have to trust me when I say I'll take care of you and I'll look out for you. I will. Those aren't empty words. I'll be there, and I always will. I will not let somebody down. Uh, the second one uh, gets to me personally because I'm a risk taker. I'm very comfortable with taking risks. And it's uh, something that uh, somebody that I used to work with said a long time ago, probably about 30 years ago. Uh, so the whole Sometimes it's better to beg forgiveness than ask permission. And to this day, I will do stuff that I know somebody might not want me to do, but it's the right thing to do. And so I'll risk getting on somebody's bad side to do the right thing. I'll go ahead and do it, and I won't ask. And then afterwards, if they get angry, oh, you know, I'm mea culpa. I'm sorry. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. But by <laughs> then, it's too late. I've already done it. Um, but it's it, it also leads to something uh, that the same person who told me that first rule said was he used to always say that if you're not getting your butt chewed once in a while, you're not doing your job. You're not putting yourself out there. You're not taking a risk. You're not pushing the envelope. You're not trying to do more. And that was uh, that was always a good lesson. The third one uh, was from the same guy, uh, which was something about um, how you deal with people. And one of the things I say today is I lead with compassion and empathy. And it drives from his the, his, the phrase that he left me was, don't use the hammer unless you need to. Uh, it's really easy as a leader to take out the 20-pound sledgehammer and, and tell somebody, that's it. He would say, put the sledgehammer away, listen to people, find out what's going on in their life, and then, and then 
you can use, you can be a disciplinarian, but be firm, be fair, be consistent, but lead with empathy and compassion. Listen to people, figure out what's going on in their lives before you make decisions that change their lives. Uh, sometimes you can't, you can't avoid it, but it helps. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a big, uh, big deal for me. Um, the next one uh, came from that first platoon sergeant. And, and the story behind this is as a young lieutenant, I was really worried that um, we do a thing on, we would do a thing on Wednesday called motor stables where you all the, everybody in a whole organization would show up in the motor post or we keep all our equipment and you'd pull maintenance on the equipment. And I worked with another lieutenant who was always underneath, you know, he'd get, he'd borrow wrenches, he'd get under there, he'd do the vehicle maintenance. And I always felt like I should be under there doing too. And my platoon sergeant said to me, he's like, you know what? You can't lead from under a truck. He said, you let that lieutenant do that stuff, but he's not out supervising. He's not out interacting with his people. Um, you have to get up, get out and engage. And then, so in today's vernacular, I would say, you also can't lead from behind a computer monitor. You have to get up out of your desk. You got to circulate the building. Um, in the military, we call that battlefield circulation. Grab a cup of coffee, go out and engage people, uh, the people who work for you. Uh, go out and see them, touch them, talk to them, find out what they're doing, find out what's going on in their lives. Uh, that has become a staple. Even today, you'll see me wandering the building and I get a reputation as the guy who wanders the building with a cup of coffee. And there are people who mistake that for thinking I don't have anything better to do than just walk around and drink coffee because they don't understand that I'm out talking to people. What's, what's going on here. I have certain places I stop every single morning and check in. I don't have to, but I do. Uh, but I check in with everybody who works for me, and then I check in with the MBA office. I might flutter up to accounting. I'll swing by and see our area director, go see our, our area admin. I'll go, to, go in and just check on people and see what's going on. Uh, that's part of that as a leader, and you appreciate this as much as anybody. It's You have to get out. You can't lead people if you don't engage people. Um, and the last one... Uh, were the three B's. And this is something I've heard a million times over the course of my career. Um, it's the be brief, be brilliant, be gone. And I push this even to my students. Um, don't say with a hundred words what you can say with 20. Uh, don't spend a half an hour talking to somebody when you can get your message across in five minutes and then give them 25 minutes to think it through, ask questions. Um, uh, I can talk forever, but I can also tell you what I need to tell you and get up and leave after a minute, and then you'll have everything you need to know. And we have, we're surrounded by people who enjoy going on long-winded diatribes when we don't need that. Keep it simple, straightforward, cut to the chase, get in, get out. And, and I do this with my students in the same way is that I teach them, those are the things when you're talking to your boss that you have to appreciate. Um, and there's a story to this one too, and it's um, I remember making a make setting up an office call with one of my bosses once. He's a three-star general, uh, and uh, used to be the superintendent at West Point. 
And I had made an office call to talk to him about something. And I went to see the secretary and said, hey, I need to go and see the boss. When can I get on his calendar? And she said, oh, you can go in right now. That's not how it works, right? And she said, he says, you can come in anytime you want. And he'll, I'll block an hour right now. And I said, I only need about five minutes. And I walked in and I told him what I needed to tell me, tell him. And he said, I said, why did why block an hour for this? And he said, look, I know when you come in, you'll tell me what you need to tell me. And then I have about 20 minutes to, to have a conversation with you, ask whatever. And then I have like 40 minutes all to myself where nobody bothers me. So anytime you want to come around, you come around. Wow. And that stuck with me, the fact that, you know, that there are people who appreciate the fact that you won't waste their time, that you'll come in the office and you'll engage them and you'll move out. And that's important. So those are the big five of the bazillion uh, little lessons yeah. I have. Uh, the other the other one that's not written down is uh, the old Colin Powell thing about uh, uh, optimism. Uh, the perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. Uh, you will very rarely find me in a bad mood because I... Uh, that I surround myself with good positive feelings and try to smile and be happy all the time and, and never get down, um, which is a lot easier when I'm around somebody like you. Uh, <laughs> no, you laugh, but you are, I, I consider you one of the best assets that we have in the school. And I don't say that lightly. Uh, I will say the opposite if it's true, but <laughs> I, I, I was talking about you today and, you know, we need to get Nate in front of the majors in Leavenworth. I mean, that's what you what you bring, what you carry. It's just like there there needs to be more of you out there to engage because you change people's lives. You have the capacity to do even more than that. And I know you've got to do research, you got to do publication, you got to do all that stuff too, and find time to do it. But you, my friend, are an uncut diamond just waiting to be a gem. <laughs> well, and that that, I, that I means a lot. Look, that means a lot coming from the all-star utility player at the at the business school. So I really appreciate it. Let me go through, let me just react to each of these in turn. Okay. So I love these lessons and, and I just want to start by saying all of these, all six of the lessons, the five that you wrote down, plus the six that you just shared about Colin Powell. All six of these will make their way into my leadership class. So both of, you know, you and me, we both teach leadership. Um, and I, I love these lessons. And none of the six are currently in my class, at least in the way you talked about them. So just, I want to say how much I really love these lessons. The first one, uh, you know, if, if you take care of them, they'll take care of you. Another way to think of this is give what you want to receive. The norm of reciprocity. I think it's one that we just, we undervalue so much, but I really like your phrasing. You know, it's like we, we talk about reciprocity, like, okay, be nice. They'll be nice back. But it's, this is more than being nice. Like, you no, know, you got to take care of them. And that means a lot. There's a lot to taking yeah. care of somebody, but when somebody has your back and it, it's like, you'll do anything for them. Yeah. So I, I really a, appreciate that. Right. Yeah. That's a big one. It's better to ask forgiveness than permission. You know, so much of leadership is just being proactive. Like, did I say that right? You were laughing. <laughs> I know I'm laughing because this came up. Um, I was having a conversation with uh, somebody that 
the made a comment. They said, what I remember about you is you're the only person I know who stole trucks in two wars. <laughs> and, and I corrected them and I said, I commandeered those trucks. I didn't steal them. <laughs> but you didn't ask anybody's permission. You just took the trucks. I'm like, yeah, okay, there's, there's some truth to that. Uh, it's a much longer story, but it was the needing to get a mission done and having equipment available that belonged to the enemy and taking enemy equipment and commandeering it. <laughs> like, I don't have, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but again, it was, it was, uh, as I explained it, there were, there were people that said, oh, you, that's wrong. But <laughs> in every case, my boss would look at it and go, hey, that's good initiative. That's yeah. all right. But yeah, I didn't ask. I just took. See something that needs to get done and you do it. And yeah. look, are they going to be happy that you commandeered the trucks? Yeah. Did you follow the right protocol? Sounds like probably not. But is every but is this a is this a huge net benefit? Yes, it, it makes me think of something John Wooden said. Since you mentioned John Wooden, uh, something to the effect of if you're not messing up, you're not doing anything. Yeah, like the only way to not mess up is to sit and do nothing, which I guess is a form of messing up. But like, if if you're if you're actively trying and pushing, you're going to mess up. I, I, he said something else that I really like. It was be quick. Don't hurry, but be quick. Yeah. So don't don't be reckless, but push boundaries. Oh yeah. Uh, I actually keep, and I'll, I'll send it to you later. But I have an article that Rick Riley wrote about John Wooden that I have carried with me since the '90s when I was still subscribing to the Print Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a story about John Wooden and the fact that uh, it really touched me because I know this is a complete sidetrack here. But the fact that after his wife passed away, that he never slept on her side of the bed ever again. And he kept, he wrote her letters and he would put them like under her pillow. And that's how he lived the rest of his life. And, and it was just so moving and meaningful to read that, that it was something that you, know, you just take away, take away and say, I want to be that good a person in life. Wow. I want to be that, that powerful in the sense that just, to honor someone that much. Yeah, I, I'm going to follow up with you on that article. I'd love to read it. Next. Guys. Okay. <laughs> Next one. Don't use the hammer unless you need to lead with empathy and compassion. <laughs> it just where my thoughts went when you were talking about this was with my kids. And oh, yeah. when I bring the hammer down, it never ends well. You know, and, and my wife is always like trying to like, look, just it, it work through it, talk through it. Don't, don't bring the hammer down. Don't start with the, you know, get to your room or I'm, you know, punishing you with this. Of course, there's a time and place for that. But I I really like the phrase of, I, I like your phrase, don't use the hammer unless you need to. And we're so quick to use the hammer. Yeah. We're prone to be quick to use it. You learn that over time, though. And I, I would say parenting taught me not to use it. Uh, I relate a lot of what I, I applied in the job to dealing with my kids and, and dealing with family life. And my kids were the ones who taught me that, okay, slow everything down. Let's deal with the calm voice. I, I only yelled twice in my entire career, which I considered a failure on my part to even yell twice. Nice. But yet I know people who felt like they had to scream to communicate. And every time I screamed or yelled, I mean, all the emotional energy would just drain out of me. 
It's like it's just it's not worth it. And and you're not gonna get anywhere by yelling at somebody. So back off, slow down. I had somebody last it was the last week, week before, tell me how harsh I was. So I had to I had to terminate somebody. And they said, Well, that was really harsh. And I and my my response was, Well, just go back in your office and shut up. But in reality, <laughs> it was you have no idea how soft a termination that was. I, I, I didn't do it because I, I wanted to. I did it because we didn't have any choice. Um, I did every single step along the way to try to avoid doing it. And the person just didn't respond. Um, so to be called harsh, like you have no idea what harsh is. Yeah. I, I treated that with kid gloves for months and, and it didn't work. But I wasn't going to yell. I wasn't going to bring the hammer. I just, hey. It. Yeah, well, I just think, you know, you see it happen in the classroom, in the workforce where somebody just drops the hammer and it's like, oh, that yeah. that can just do so much damage so quickly. Okay, the other one, you can't leave from under a truck. This just made me think of uh, a couple things. Uh, one, I have a friend, one of, one of my best friends. He refuses to listen to any episode from a professor who has not worked who has not had a job other than being a professor because <laughs> I don't care what they have to say. If they've only learned it from a book or from the research. Now, of course I, you know, in my mind, that's probably a little you're not talking about me. Are you <laughs> you're talking about me, right? <laughs> yeah. You're in how many countries have you lived? Of course, there's things that we can learn from professors who have conducted experiments and run ethnographies and conducted studies, but there is something to be said for being out there with the people and working with them and having experienced it. A phrase that I heard recently that I really like, I don't know if it's a hundred percent true, but I think it's mostly true is you, you cannot over communicate in an organization. Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. And so by you making the rounds with your coffee, that's just you, you know, getting a feel for what's going on because it, 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 to over communicate in an organization. Now, maybe you, you, it's sure it's possible to send too many emails, but to over communicate, it just doesn't happen. We're just, we're so much more likely to under communicate what's happening. Well, if we're, if we're going to be, we're a, we're a, we're a people profession, right? We deal with students all day. Um, can you imagine doing your job where you had no interaction at all with the students? I, you can't, and especially yeah. teaching leadership. And uh, I, I, I had I had talked about this because I do my both my leadership classes are online, and I have made it a point all along to I hate to say create the illusion of the human connection, but as much as you can in an online environment, I make them feel like we have a a, a true connection, um, and we stay connected via LinkedIn, whatever. Yeah as much as possible, bring them in so they don't feel like they're in some, um, they're just an anonymous face in an online class. Uh, that's a tough subject to teach online anyway. But uh, I mean, I don't understand how we don't get out and do more and, and see each other more and engage more. The staff would love to see us on a regular basis. And I love nothing more than wandering the halls and poking my head into people's offices and saying hello. Yeah, that's I think fun. that's that's something I could, and I'll try to do a little bit more because, like you were saying, you know, I got the research and I got the teaching, I got the service, and so yeah, the, but the research is where I got my thing. So I focus on the research, but 
it, it is so important to connect with people. One of the phrases that I really like is uh, when in doubt, reach out. And I just think that's oh. such a great phrase that captures the importance of connecting. Uh, okay. Number five, be brief, be brilliant, be gone. What a great phrase that I've never heard. Uh, don't waste people's time. So I love the three B's. But that also applies to communication. Do you ever watch the movie A River Runs Through It or read the book? Um, as a kid, but uh, no, I know. So it goes back. So yeah. there's a scene in the movie where Tom Skerritt, who plays the father, um, is teaching his son, who becomes uh, a writer, and whose book, yeah, Norman McLean, his book Young Men and Fire is sitting right there, uh, teaching Norman McLean, young Norman McLean, how to write. And and I used to use this in class as an example, be brief, be brilliant, be gone. But Norman McLean, young Norman brings in a paper he wrote for his dad. He looks at it, hands it back, says, write it again, half as long. Kid rewrites it, brings it back, write it again, half as long. And he does that until the kid can write in really tight prose. Um, and it, and it, it, it exemplifies, be brief, be brilliant, be gone. Learn to be concise, but yet pack as much as you can in a few words uh very powerful scene but you'll miss it if you watch the movie because there's so much else going on but that's one i always pull out and of course now it's old so you know when you say ah it's been since i was a kid (laughs) i get that a lot so it reminds me of this uh phrase french philosopher uh blaise pascal wrote i am writing you a longer letter only because i did not have time to make it shorter (laughs) There's such value in being brief, be brilliant, be gone. Okay, last one. The perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. That just made me think of think of Pete Carroll, you know, football oh, coach. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of styles, a lot of leadership styles. You got the Urban Meyer, had a lot of success in and won a lot of games, Nick Saban. And then you have the Pete Carroll that's just the happy build people up. He's always and he talks about this. He just always expects good things to happen. And so I love this Colin Powell quote, perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. I love the fact that you pulled out Pete Carroll because three feet away from me is a football signed by Pete Carroll uh, that was given to me. He gave it to me as a retirement gift from the army. No way. Uh, And it's sitting in glass right there with a Seahawks uh, Super Bowl ring and a little little Lego fan guy. Uh, that, That thing is up right above my Steve Largent portrait, my signed picture from Steve Largent. <laughs> Lifelong Seahawks fan and love Pete Carroll. So yeah. that's a good touch point. Awesome to hear. Well, see, this has been awesome for me. I, again, I, I took more of your time than I asked for, but that's okay. I, I know oh. we can keep going. This was so fun. Yeah. Uh, it's just been great to work with you and and watch when when the business school needs an important initiative to get done you're the first one they talk to and you make things happen. You do it with kindness. You do it with optimism and energy. And it's just been so great to learn from you. You also helped me with my leadership class. Uh, I I'm grateful that this isn't the end. We just get to keep working together. So thanks so much for coming on. I can't wait to work together. I swear to God, one way or another, you and I are going to do the wonder twins thing. Uh, It's just a matter of time until it happens. Well, you got to tell what is that? What is the Wonder Twins thing? That's when we come together and the Wonder Twins powers unite, whatever. I I feel like that the two of us in driving 470 would just, you know, 
there's so much there yeah. and and i mean i'm content where i am right now one day i'm going to get fired as the as the assistant dean and then i'll have extra class time to teach and uh we will we will wonder twins the heck out of that stuff hey i'm all in well this has been awesome thanks again steve and we'll be seeing you soon all right i'll see you in the see you around the building Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickels and Dimes. What excellent leadership lessons from Steve Leonard, an excellent leader. First, if you take care of people, they'll take care of you. Second, it's sometimes better to beg forgiveness than ask permission, especially when it comes to commandeering enemy vehicles. Third, don't use the hammer unless you need to, and you'll rarely need to. Fourth, you can't lead from under a truck or from behind a computer monitor. Fifth, remember the three Bs. Be brief, be brilliant, be gone. And sixth, perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. What simple, practical, underappreciated lessons. Please take them seriously. Nate Mickle here with three requests and one suggestion. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's Notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Third, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. And now a suggestion. If you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. Thanks for your support.